0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org. It's a joy
1: to be with you today. We're going to be looking at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2, Six. Zephaniah 1, 2 through 6. I thought I'd put up a big macro outline of the book so you can see where we're headed and where we are. We'll go big and then we'll narrow in. Last week we considered the superscription, remember that S word, the title of the book. In one, the superscription to the Savior's summons, to satisfaction. That's how I've tagged this book. This is about the Savior calling people to patiently pursue him together in order that our joy in our Savior might be consummated, and the Savior's joy in his saved might be realized. We have a singing God who sings over those that he delivers. And Zephaniah is pointing us in that direction, using the highest level motivation it can, joy. How many of you and joy, joy. How many of you want gain? Gain, to live as Christ, to die is gain, to embrace. For the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. And this book is set up in that exact pattern. Having to carry the cross in order to find our desire transformed into delight. Zephaniah. Superscription leads to the setting of the summons to satisfaction, and this week and next, that's where we are going to be. The summons is not made until we get to chapter 2. That's where we first see the commands, gather together, seek the Lord, and then in chapter 3, verse 8, wait for the Lord. Those are the three main commands of the book. Gather together, seek the Lord, they work together, gather and seek in order to avoid judgment. And then... Wait for the Lord in order to enjoy satisfaction. Patience is waiting. Gather together and seek is the pursuit. A patient pursuit of God in order to experience pleasure. That's the heart of Zephaniah's message. So these weeks we're looking at the setting to the summons. We're gearing up. And the setting for the summons is that judgment is coming. And in the wake of that, the main thrust of the unit is a call to Godward reverence. And then we're going to get to the essence of the summons to satisfaction, which are the charges to patiently pursue the Lord together. So here's where we're at the setting to the Savior's summons to satisfaction. And within this unit, there's two parts there's the Context for the call to Godward reverence, and then the makeup of the call to Godward reverence, and that's where we're at today. The context for the call to Godward reverence. You see in verse 7, it's going to say, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. That's the call to Godward reverence. Turn your eyes Godward. Don't be looking to the left or to the right. Know that He is holy and He takes sin seriously. So if you, the the only people who can possibly experience joy are those who first take sin seriously. Who take God's bigness seriously. There is no joy, real joy, that comes to anyone apart from first recognizing our sinfulness and our need for saving. So in this context then, or now we set the context for the summons. And we're going to look now at these verses So I'm going to recite them, and then we're going to pray and dive into our study for the day. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. God's talking. This is the word of the Lord, remember, from 1-1. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I'll sweep away everything. Man and beast, I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him father god open up your word to us as we as we walk through it together give these people that i love so dearly and for whom i care about the outcome of their faith give them eyes to see awaken their minds that they can ask the right questions we want to observe Accurately. We want to understand rightly, and we want to evaluate fairly in order that we can feel appropriately about the truth that you've given so that we can, in turn, act, and then, for a world in need, <coughs> express this truth in lies and words that matter. So move us in that direction, I pray. Open our eyes to feel the, the weightiness of coming judgment. Help us not ignore the fact that you are on the throne and you are holy and you take sin seriously, necessarily so, rightly so, and lovingly so, in order that we might not settle in our satisfactions with things of this world that are fleeting, that will pass, but that we might find our joy complete in you.
0: Okay, we begin.
1: Global punishment against the rebels of humanity. So we start out in verses 2 and 3. Did you know that God was a housekeeper? The ESV translates it I will utterly sweep away everything. Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool, and the day is coming when he will clean house. Now, the ESV translates this as sweep away, but the verb, and then you see it repeated there two other times... I will utterly sweep away everything. I'll sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble of the wicked. But the verb is exactly the same as the verb that we see in chapter 3, verse 8. So why don't you just turn over there? Because I interpret this a little bit differently than I think um, a surface reading ESV might lead us to think. Chapter 3, verse 8. Somebody read this verse for us good and loud. Anyway. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to cease to pray, for my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Okay, that word for gather, you see that? I will gather nations. And he's going to gather them in in order that he might ultimately. Pour out is the fire of his jealousy. But with that gathering will also be those that you read in verses 9 and 10, whose speech will be changed, who will actually speak purely, calling upon the name of the Lord and serving him with one accord, and, and they'll come from as far as the southernmost reaches of the globe, from the ancient world's perspective, ancient Ethiopia. And they'll be worshippers. So you have the nations being gathered, and some will be judged, and some will somehow live through the judgment and have transformed lives. And the verb is gather, and that's the exact same verb that we see in chapter 1. We also see it in verse 18 of chapter 3. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. It's probably the weirdest verse, hardest verse to understand, how it fits in the context of all the verses in the book. And we're not going to focus on that today. <laughs> we have, we'll, we'll, just before Christmas, we'll be coming there and I, I pray that I can bring great clarity. But I think this is actually a positive statement. Notice in verse Eight of chapter 3, there was this comparison a negative punishment coming context gather and assemble. You see that? God's going to gather the peoples, assemble sorry, gather the nations, assemble kingdoms for punishment and now at the end of the book we have the exact same words translated a little bit differently here and there. Verse 18, God's going to gather the mourn, the mournful and he's going to Assemble or gather, verse 19, the outcast. He's going to save the lame and <laughs> change their, their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. He's going to do a work. And so there's a, a gathering for punishment and there's a gathering for deliverance. So now we come back to verse 1, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, and the ESV, it You could read this as the sweep away. What it's doing is it's recognizing we have to get to the point where there's people who are going to be cut off, it says at the end of verse 3. That's a punishment word, and they have to be cut off. And so this is a context, and, and so it rendered the gathering verb as sweep away. But I want to just leave it at gather for now. So I will gather, surely gather everything from the face of the earth. He's going to bring everything on the earth together. In the old creation, he's going to gather things for, I believe, judicial assessment. Some things will be cut off and burned. Other things will not. So with that in mind, let me start asking questions. And you guys... Look at this text. What's the scope of the final day's gathering? How broad is it going to get? Everything. So that doesn't leave much outside of that, does it? So, And then it goes on to define it, doesn't it? Everything from the face of the earth... Now, one of the, the where in history has something happened among everything from on the face of the earth. Where where else in history? Noah's, Noah's. Noah's flood, and that exact phrase is used in Genesis chapter six. So it seems very likely that right off the bat, Zephaniah or God through Zephaniah is is wanting people to be thinking about the past. And what was Noah's flood? Who can summarize it? What was it about? What was God doing through the flood? Pardon? Judgment. He was bringing punishment on all flesh. Intriguingly, not just humans. It was because of the wickedness of man that God brings the flood. That's what we're told in Genesis 6, verses 4 and 5. But then, later in the chapter, what we learn is that it's due to the Violence and corruption of all flesh. And then it defines flesh as birds of the heaven, beasts of the field, and humanity. Chapter 7, verse 21 of Genesis. Flesh is bigger than just humans. That there's something going on among even the animal kingdom that is corruptible and worthy of flood. One of the reasons I think it's a global flood is because it focuses on this aspect that, that there's actually some kind of animal violence that's bad. And then you've got birds. In order to save the birds, you've got to get them on the ark. But if it's a regional flood, they just fly over the hill. There's something happening, and I think it has to do with humanity. That part of the fall in God subjecting the world, whole world, to futility in hope, not because of him who subjected it, So God subjected the world to futility in hope in order that the whole creation may be set free from its bondage to corruption. All of the creation is bound up in corruption, but there's hope. He subjected the world to futility in hope that the whole creation may be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. I got to spend 12 hours in the last few days with a dear friend, he's a pastor over in Maplewood. He and I went to a conference, so 12 hours, two pastors in the car together. And if you were in there, you would have been utterly bored. <laughs> Our conversation went all over the map, and it was absolutely delightful to me. And so we were talking about all kinds of things, and now I gotta remember what I why I brought that. <laughs> oh, because he's, he's preaching next week on heaven. And one of the things that he's trying to do is help people recognize that heaven is not our eternal home. This world was subjected to corruption in hope that the world itself may be set free and become a new earth. And that's where we'll be forever. Not an eternal existence without bodies, but an eternal existence with bodies, resurrected from the dead, having the grave overcome, having the old creation in Adam destroyed, and somehow all of us, Lord willing, making it through punishment. Without the fires of God's wrath, no longer waters of judgment, now fires of judgment not consuming us. Chapter 2, verse 3 of Zephaniah Seek the Lord. Perhaps you may be hidden from the coming punishment. Perhaps. It's the only possibility. Seek the Lord. And then the rest of the book tells us it actually happens. But God is going to gather, in an echo of what he did way back with Noah, he's going to gather together man and beast. What else can you learn? What other things is he going to gather? He explains them all there. Okay, man, beast, birds of the heavens, and fish of the sea, and then the rubble with the wicked. So let's, before we get to that part, let's start right here. That pattern, man, beast. Bird, fish. Is there anything intriguing about that arrangement? Pardon? Okay. But in reverse from Genesis 1. So the fish were created first, then the birds, then what's next is the animals, and then mankind at the climax. So at the end of the age, before we arrive at new creation, things are going to go backwards. What would that suggest about the original creation? What, what, what's happening to that original creation? Before the restoration, undone. God moved somewhere and now He's going backwards again. You see that? It's a, it's a decreation. It's what happened at Noah's flood. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. That's water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and then God said, let there be light. And then at the flood, all of a sudden, the winds begin to blow. The Spirit, same exact word for Spirit in Genesis 1-2. And the waters come in. So in creation, the waters get overcome as the land rises and life all of a sudden is taking place where it was impossible before. And then what the flood does is it brings those waters back over top of the original creation, so there's a decreation. Before you can have new, you go backwards, and then what does God do? He raises up one more man, one more woman, and three boys, Noah, his wife, and three sons. As an image of Adam and Eve and their three boys. It's a new creation that's starting up with new possibilities. A fresh start for humanity. And now at the end of the age, we have these echoes of the decreation that's going to happen. And where's the focus of this decreation? We see it then. This gathering will take place. Well, before we get to the focus at the end of the verse, we also have this added element. The rubble with the wicked. Very literally, it's the stumbling blocks with the wicked. So, thinking about rubble might, if, I, if you use the word stumbling blocks, what does that bring to mind? That's how this term is translated, a uh, related term is translated in Ezekiel, as stumbling blocks. It's referring to something specific. What comes to your mind? Jews' rejection of Christ. Christ. Idols. Idols. These are what people stumble over. And in the end, God's, I think that's the the point. But they're empty. They haven't resulted in life. They've brought death. They've brought destruction. And it's it's ESV rubble. But God's going to gather it all. And what's amazing is he's able to. No power stronger than him. No mighty animal. Just just sitting in the service this morning, I hope you had the chance to do that. If you didn't, you can get up now and go back. It's worth the sermon. Just to let your mind be a little bit blown. Isn't it a gift to just let our minds be blown to help us feel small and then all of a sudden recognize, in my smallness, God reaches down. He wants us to recognize our weakness so that the surpassing power is shown to not come from us, but from him simply a vessel of clay made out of mud and God says precious in my sight I care for you you. but this is a God who has massive power and he will overcome all things he's going to gather everything together for judicial assessment and it includes anything that caused others to stumble and then the wicked so notice how the man is up front and then beast Birds, fish, stumbling blocks, with the wicked. So I, th- I think the wicked here is focused on humanity. So you have a frame. The entire list is framed by us. By you and me. In the Bible, how is wickedness defined? I'm not looking here for specific deeds. Specific activities that are considered wicked. Just Generally, how is it defined? Because the world is practicing lots of things that they act like aren't, that they're not wicked. But when the Bible calls something wicked, what's the benchmark? Rebellion against, against God. There's an implicit standard right off the bat. And God is the great mover who's entering into his world that he created from the beginning, and he's going to set things in order. The rubble with the wicked. And then we come to, I think, the culminating point. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So you see the face of the earth in verse 2, the face of the earth in verse 3. And it kind of shapes like bookends around this whole unit. The gathering verb is used, this, this verb to gather, is used in many different punishment contexts among the prophets, and often the way that it's set up, as in Jeremiah chapter eight verse thirteen, is the images of a grape harvest or of a wheat harvest. In Jeremiah eight thirteen, it's of a grape harvest, and so anybody grape growers, what are they called? Uh, Yeah, one of those. Uh, so people that, that grow these grapes and make good drinks, what, what do they have to do? They go out to gather, and what is their goal in, in gathering? It's actually twofold. Get the good grapes, and get rid of the bad grapes. they've got to get rid of the bad grapes. Both are happening in the gathering. And some of the texts focus on the gathering of the good, and some of the texts focus on the gathering of the bad. At times, in the wheat context, you see the gathering of the wheat, and then you can't just take it and make your grain. You have to separate the wheat from the chaff, and then the chaff gets blown away because it's unimportant. So this verb together is used in both of those contexts, and it seems to me very likely that's also in the mind of Zephaniah. And then he uses the cut-off verb. What images does that bring to mind in light of the the agricultural imagery? Pruning. This is the verb that we see showing up all the time throughout the Old Testament in covenant curse contexts. God will cut off and that's the image of punishment. But it also it plays into this whole agricultural image of God gathering everything at the end of the age. And he's going to start a pruning process that's going to result in fruit for him. But a pile, a heap pile of, um, what's it called? Is my wife still here? What do we call that stuff that's on right next to our sink in the bucket? Compost. That's it is. So, sorry. Uh, a very minimal vocabulary. And so compost. And so you've got all the compost, but then you've got the the fruit too. Um, and God, God's going to set out to engage this. Let me pause there. Look at that. Two verses. It's only seven minutes till we're flying. <laughs> okay. So, so. Let me just pause there. Questions or comments on on verses 2 and 3? Jenny. When
0: Steve said, cut off from uh, the ruins along with the wicked, could the wicked also refer to maybe the qualifications? The tenth.
1: The question is, could the wicked in verse refer to something like fallen angels. Well, let's ponder that. We know that in Colossians chapter 1 all things are created by Jesus. things in heaven and things on earth, the visible and the invisible are created by Jesus and then it defines them the thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things are created through him and for him. So if Jesus creates even the dark forces, that same list that shows up in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against those things. The rulers and authorities and the powers of this present darkness. So those angelic beings are definitely part of this world that were created by Jesus for Jesus says Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And then in Colossians 2, I think it's verse 15, it stresses that at the cross, Jesus disarmed, and then it cites the text before, the rulers and the authorities. At the cross, he disarmed all the spiritual powers. So there's a trajectory of judgment that includes the disarming of even the spiritual beings. So we can say that's a truth the Bible teaches, but does this text point to that. I question it because it's so focused on the earthly sphere. This book is focused on a global punishment that God's going to bring on the peoples we can see, the fruit we can taste, the, the structures that we've built to give ourselves security, the earthly sphere. So I'm, I'm thinking probably at least in the most four Forefront of Zephaniah's mind, the wicked refers to humans. And in Genesis, the wickedness verb or adjective is restricted to humanity. When it broadens out to all flesh, it uses different uh, terms corrupt and violent. So I think that it's referring most likely to. So it's not saying other kinds of punishment won't happen, but the focus is on the people reading this book and their neighbors. And the people reading the book, he wants them to know, he starts out, notice he starts out very broad. His focus is just on the world. But then the people of God might be thinking, somehow You know, there's a covering over us. Jeremiah chapter seven, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're secure. We're at peace. We have the presence of God and we have the Word of God. And Jeremiah chapters 7 through 9, that entire sermon at the temple is, and that's, he's a contemporary of Zephaniah. So we can read Jeremiah and understand what, what's going on in Zephaniah's day. And they're thinking they're absolutely secure, and Zephaniah right here is going to make a move that says, God starts out with a broad punishment on the whole world. It's coming. But lest you think you're safe. It's even going to overcome Jerusalem. Um,
0: it seems to me the term from the face of the earth also maybe speaks to this question because speaking about this. but good point.
1: Um, the face of the earth. So are we talking about those who move through this judicial assessment? What where do we all go if we're removed from the face wiping away or destroying the face of the earth? imagine those that are wicked and yes. they're gone we're gone from the face earth. there is a sense of complete <clears throat> house clean so if we call that dead it would necessitate that if there's any existence on a new earth afterwards it would entail resurrection From where? From so everything got swept away. Well, that's why I use the term "gather." The that's why I, I use the term "gather" instead of "sweep away." Yeah. But we—I don't want to force the language too hard. He's preaching in order to gain effect. I don't think he's speaking hyperbolically. You know, in, in an exaggerated way. He's talking about a complete judgment on all mankind that's going to include a divine judicial assessment of everything on the earth. But somehow we have to move through fire in order to enjoy a new creation. There's a purifying that's going to take place. So sometimes the Bible will talk about a new earth, and sometimes as in Romans 8, it's, it clearly suggests that there's some kind of organic connection between the present earth and the future. So when C.S. Lewis tried to describe this in his final book in the Narnia series. The children keep looking backwards and seeing—and then looking forwards and backwards, and they're like, this is—we've been here before, but but it's more real. It's it's like what we had, but what we had was almost like a shadow. But when you consider what will the future eternal state be like— I mean, yesterday, I came from Chicago up to here, and I just saw miles and miles of grain, beautiful grain, as the sun was setting. And I think I'm getting a taste of eternity there. <laughs> There's some kind of organic connection. There's a house cleaning, a, fire, a burning with fire that is real, but I can't, I can't explain exactly how it's all going to work out. But there is still a connection between what is now and what will be. And there's, a, at one level, a protection from the wrath of God, and at another level, it's as if you've gone through the wrath of God. And the prophets can talk in both ways. Yeah, you, if I understood right, uh, you, you you referred to the area where it talks about the rubble and the wicked, and the rubble, you said, was more like a stumbling block. Is that what you said? It is. Okay, and so Paul warns against being a stumbling block to others, but what does... About stumbling blocks, or I'm still not clear who that applies to. It. You know, is that us in some instances? Well, it's, re- it's referring in other contexts, at least a related term that's from the same root, is, is referring specifically to the idols, okay. the man made idols that cause others to stumble. And our passage is going to focus on those kinds of things. Anything in this world that people begin to revere other than God is a stumbling block that will be overcome. In some sense. Let's, let's move on, if we can, to our next verse. Notice we've moved from global to local. And we started our, our whole book by saying, Okay, he is a son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah. That is, King Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah. So this is a preacher who's being commissioned by God as a mouthpiece of God to enter in in the days of Judah, which suggests already that this is his primary audience. So he's using the power of his words to somehow relate his local audience in Jerusalem and in Judah to what's going to happen in the broader world, and he's going to use that to his own benefit. Because there appears to be a self-centeredness that thinks I'm okay, I can live the way I want, and I'm still okay with God. I'm in. And it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter the nature of my heart. I'm okay. And he's going to try to overcome that with his argument. Saying, you're not safe. You're not safe if you don't take sin seriously. So I will stretch out my hand. So... First step in verse 2 was, I will gather. Now he's going to stretch out. And then the result is, in the end of verse 3, I will cut off. So I will gather, and then I will cut off. Now we read in, verses, in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand, and I will cut off from this place. So there seems to be a parallel. God's activity is has a, has a parallel. He's, he's gathering and cutting. He's stretching out and cutting. And now the second grouping is is focused. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, if we're in the days of Josiah, what can you tell me about Judah? They're in the midst of a revival after. Okay, Josiah is a king who's bringing about revival. Does Judah have any brothers? There were two kingdoms, right? Is the northern kingdom still there? No. Josiah finds his law book, the book of Deuteronomy most likely, that pushes him into even greater reform in 622 B.C. Now, a 100 years before that, in 723, is when the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. So a hundred years have gone by with Judah being the only place. There are stragglers from the tribes that are still there, from the northern tribes. But Judah is, is, the, is the kingdom. It's the only kingdom with a king. The northern kingdom is decimated, and Assyrian, an Assyrian governor is up there. So all there is is Judah. These are the people of God. And what he says is Judah and the capital, Jerusalem, has a problem. They look like the rest of the world. So the very people that are supposed to be imaging God, putting him on display at the center of the earth, think about theological geography. I wish I had thought about this, put up a map. But you've got Mesopotamia at the top. So you've got the Persian Gulf, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. And you've got... Actually, the Persian Gulf is down here. Sorry. Um, But you've got the Tigris and Euphrates. So this is Mesopotamia world. And this is Egypt world. And then you've got Israel. Mediterranean Sea? Tough to cross. Persian Arabian Desert? Tough to cross. And therefore, all the the two major world powers, be it Assyria, Babylon, or Persia... When they want to expand through war or through trade, they have to come through Israel. And if Egypt wants to expand their kingdom, they've got to go through Israel, because the desert's too tough going for a massive army, and the waters, very few could cross them. So Israel is what we call, in theological geography, the land between. That's how people have referred to it. And that's why so much of ancient history dots the Bible. God put Israel, Ezekiel 5, verse 5, in the center of the earth. That's that's how God says it. In order that they might be a light to the nations. And all of a sudden this light is becoming very dim because it's getting covered over with all kinds of dirt. Let's consider what we have here. There's a list. Somebody read for me the list of those who are bad. Good and loud. God's going to cut off everyone from Jerusalem. Who? Keep going. One, one person. Good and loud. I will cut off from this place the remnant Down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Onoko. Those who turn back from following the Lord do not seek the Lord
0: All right. Now,
1: if you look at lots of translations, you'll see that they put conjunctions in different places. I wish that translators would be a little more careful to put the conjunctions where we see them in the Old Testament. But whether it's NIV, NRSV, um, NASV, ESV, they're not always aligned when it comes to the conjunctions. And almost every clause begins with and in Biblical Hebrew. But reading the ands, the ands are there with a purpose to help us create units that are linked together. Okay, So if you look at the ESV, how many groups do you see? Remember, this is how it works in English. Take you back to high school, English class. Jason, my Sunday school teacher, taught on Zephaniah. Without the and between Jason, my Sunday school teacher, taught on Zephaniah, how many people are we talking about? Just one. But if I put Jason and my Sunday school teacher taught on Zephaniah... How many people do you expect? Okay. So we call the lack of the conjunction with two nominal phrases side by side. The second one is called, anybody know? Apposition, the appositive. I don't know why, but that's what it's called. So just look at the ESV. How many groups is it giving you? Okay, you're reading. Wow. Um, five, six, seven. Um, I want you to track the and and the lack of and. Look at the list and try to see what it's communicating to you. The remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and they have swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and do not seek the Lord or inquire How many groups? Okay, let's figure this out. (laughs) The remnant of Baal and... So I'm going to cut off the remnant of Baal and the second group I'm going to cut off are the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Okay? So there's an along with that that seems to link those two together. But then it, it has this rapid fire those who, those who, those who. Are you with me? And and in doing so, it, it appears it's wanting us to read all of those who are doing something are the priests. It's actually defining what the priests were doing wrong. But in the Hebrew text, that's not where the and is placed. It says the remnant of Baal, comma, no and here, the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, and... Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heaven and those who swear to the Lord and yet swear by Malcolm and those who have turned their back from following the Lord, comma, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. I would be led in reading the ESV really closely to think there's two groups. There's a remnant of Baal and there's a priesthood and among those priesthood there's problems. But I think Zephaniah wants us to see the, the problems being bigger than the religious elite. In fact, it's any of those people. It's the religious elite, right here, the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, I'm going to do away with that. And not only their identities, but also those who bow down on the roofs, who may have been more than just the priests. And those who are bowing down and swearing to God, but by a different being. And those who have turned back from following the Lord. Do you see how I'm I'm just, I'm trying to track what's the author trying to communicate, and when it comes to application of this text, if we limit it to the pastors, it'd be easy for everyone here to think, well, that doesn't touch me. But I think Zephaniah is talking to a broader community than just the religious leadership, even though things usually start there. Well, it seems like you're... uh... I don't know why, but just ignoring Judah and Jerusalem. Because he starts out, I Are you just drawing the distinction between stretching out his hand and cutting off as though they were two different...
0: No, nope. it, it's two different actions. So right. he's going to stretch out his hand,
1: and then, as he does, the next step will be cutting off the remnant of Baal that are located in Jerusalem and Judah. So his, his arm stretching... It's, it's the same exact uh, word that's used against Egypt in the Exodus narrative. He stretches out his arm against them and he's gonna, he stretches out his arm against that whole group. So, so right now the remnant of Baal is amidst Judah and Jerusalem, which is absolutely amazing. So who is Baal? Fertility God. Fertility God. So we're talking about rain, And we're talking about babies. In the ancient world, gods were specialists, except Yahweh. So if you had an infertility problem, it's been a bad drought, Baal is portrayed in, we call them reliefs, stone drawings on walls of temples. He's portrayed in the reliefs as a cloud rider with a lightning bolt in his hand. He's the God who makes rain. So think about the the Ezra, not the uh, Elijah narrative. When he's standing there with how many prophets of Baal? 400? Is that it? 400 prophets of Baal, and he's saying, and they haven't had rain. And he's saying, go ahead, pray to Baal. Where is he? He's on vacation. He's going to the bathroom. And he's taunting them. And Baal is supposed to make rain. And Baal, for three years, was unable to make rain. And then he pleads with God, and all of a sudden this little cloud comes in. But before the cloud comes in, lightning falls from heaven and sucks up the stones and the water. Because Yahweh is God, there is no other. The remnant of Baal, though, is hanging out in Jerusalem. The very center of of where life is supposed to be happening. God is supposed to be glorified. and, And remember, this is not just a city. This is a city made up of homes. A city made up of homes with families, where there's a father and a mother and children who are not honoring God. And it's the family units combined that make a city. And together, there's a remnant of Baal in their midst. And that remnant of Baal is permeating the entire community in different ways. It starts with the religious leadership. Idolatrous priests and priests are both going to get judged. This term for idolatrous priests, as the ESV renders it, I think, as I've tracked it down, it seems most likely it's illegitimate priests, because all of them right now are being idolatrous. They're all part of the remnant of Baal. So I would have called it illegitimate priests, meaning that in the days of Jeroboam, we are told in 1 Kings... Remember Jeroboam, the king who set up the golden calf in Dan and Bethel, separated worship from Jerusalem? He also appointed non-Levite priests. God had set apart the Levites to be the pastors, and he set up illegitimate priests. That's what it's called. That's the term that's used exactly here. And we're told in 2 Kings 23, verse 5, that one of the things that Josiah, the king during this day age does is he goes and he wipes out all of the idolatrous priests or illegitimate priests. He takes them out because God had not commissioned them to be priests. He had set a different group aside. So there's an unwillingness to honor God. Later in the book, we learn that the priests in, in chapter 3 verse 4, her prophets are fickle treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. Holy they do violence to the law. They're supposed to be the teachers of the law, and yet they're not aligning themselves with the glory of God or
0: honoring Him. A question that I would have, maybe uh, as a 21st century American, with uh, reading this Christian law? You know, you talk about the global judgment first, and now we're talking about Judah and Jerusalem and Baal and those kinds of things. Knowing, we can see that Babylon's coming. You can see seventy-eight. You know, even in Jesus' time, there were no failed priests around. With, okay, right, but it hey, seems like there's many things playing out of this, or what's being referenced here? You know, there's so many, so many judgment cycles. Judgment
1: cycles is a good term. What, what ends up happening is God proclaims the day of the Lord, the day when the warrior will show up, and it's only after the fact that you know that it was only picture of even a greater day. And the, these cycles keep going, but those who are experiencing them never know that it's not the final one that this is ultimately pointing to. So Babylon is on the other side of the next hill, and at one level they're going to fulfill Zephaniah's prophecy, and then at another level, because he's talking about something even bigger, it lets us know that we're anticipating something even more, and that's why Zephaniah's prophecy can still be useful within our context today. Because the ultimate judgment of God, he's still being patient. He's still withholding his wrath. The bow of the Noahic covenant is still pointed upwards. But the day will come where it will turn around once again. But it, the punishment will be of water, it will be of fire. But those cycles, that's so important to recognize because every major judgment is pointed to as the day of the Lord. And so it seems as though every one is a foreshadowing of the ultimate one, and we're still waiting for it. In some ways. Uh, what, what's the state of the temple at this moment? This temple is still Solomon's temple is still full, still big, and these priests in Jerusalem are um, not honoring God in the way that they're facilitating corporate worship. So in as you've outlined it here under the Hebrew, you've got the, it refers to the remnants of Baal, and, and that's specific to Jerusalem and Judah. Um, but then in the sense of the judgment cycles, it seems like Baal yeah. is not just always literal, but becomes also a figure for any idolatrous worship. Is that right? That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, so the spirit of Canaan when house cleaning doesn't happen, it continues on under different names, but the problem is, is still there. We'll even see that in just a second regarding different names. So you have an elite group of religious leaders who are having trouble. Then you have those who are actually worshiping stars. And I just look at this and I say, okay, we're not, I'm not doing that. Um, I don't really see that happening too often. What does it imply if they're worshiping stars? Knowing that the sun has a different word, actually, in Hebrew. So they would specify the stars, and then the sun is something distinct. So if their problem is star worship, what time of day is it happening? At night. When others can't see. There appears to be a hiddenness to this thing. Yet it's also creation worship. Rather than worship of God, so when it comes to trying to build bridges, what we have is people who are stopping short of giving honor, the glory that He is of giving Yahweh the honor that He is due. They're they're somehow taking delight, looking for hope in things of the world and not the ultimate source of all things. Tell me what you see in this. Statement about to and by. What do you think that's talking about? They bow down and swear to the Lord, but swear by Milcom. Milcom just means they are their king. They swear by their king. A form of this is the name of the Ammonite God nearby. But I think it's better translated their king, and therefore it applies to any deity that they're actually giving allegiance to. It's broader than just one Ammonite deity. It's, But I think it's, it's, a, it's talking about that. They're swearing to the Lord, making promises to God, and yet they're swearing by a different authority. What would that imply? Double-minded.
0: Double-minded.
1: They're bringing it together. Somehow they're they're saying it's, I am for God. I am for the Lord, the only Lord. And yet, um, they're not living for him all the time. It's not whole life surrender. There's compromise happening.
0: Putting more confidence, really.
1: Putting more confidence. So what would it mean to actually swear by, swear to the Lord, but swear by some someone or something else? Like, I'll get my word, and it's going to be a study. Somebody read for me um, who will take Joshua 2.12, who will take, thank you Mark, who will take 1 Samuel 28.10. Thank you, just good and loud as quickly as you can. These are just some other examples of this exact structure used, and see if you can hear as as they read, think about the social status of the two and the social status of the by. And what that would imply for our text. Go ahead. Okay. This is The first one is Saul. Joshua? Oh, Joshua, sorry. Right now, here. Now then please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you and also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign Okay, two spies. Swear to me by Yahweh that you won't cut me off when Jericho gets destroyed. Who's higher in social status? The one they're swearing to or the one they're swearing by? And the implication of that promise is, if they're swearing by Yahweh, that we will not cut you off. What's the implication there? What kind of vow is being made? You break the vow, God breaks you. You break the vow, God breaks you. Let God be your authority as you make this promise to me. There's a motivation there. If I don't complete what I've promised, I'm going to be under his watch, care, judgment, etc. Saul, at the witch of Endor.
0: But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing.
1: Saul swore to the woman by the Lord, as Yahweh lives, he's the living God, and he can judge me as he wills. In light of his livingness, I'm putting myself underneath that kind of bigness as I declare to you what I'm about to say. Now, they're swearing, in our text, to the Lord, but by their king. So put the social status question up again, and what does that imply about this text? How are their lives, what's going on in their lives? Pardon? Their greater allegiance, if you will, to the king. Their greater allegiance is to the king. What else? Their hope. Is it their king? What else? They're not, concerned about the wrath of the king. They're not concerned chiefly about the Yahweh's wrath. They're more concerned about the wrath of their king. Their highest motivation is something other than God. As they enter into life and begin to make promises, I'll do that. I'll do that. Whether or not they do it is is being motivated not ultimately by the glory of God, but by some other factor that's controlling their promises. Whether they follow through or they don't follow through is being guarded and guided by some other influence that is ultimately their king. Say, the fear of man versus the fear of God. Something outside Yahweh is ultimately the benchmark. Just think about it. During the time of Christ, because that same issue came up, where you're swearing by the gold of the temple, or you're swearing by heaven, but what about God? Right, right. Well, just as uh, Baal was the god of fertility, the god of fertility, no. spelling of Milcom isn't what we have here. But Milcom comes from the root in Hebrew, Malak, which is king. And Yahweh in chapter 3, verse 15, is going to be called the real king. It's using the exact same root, even though you can't see it in English. They're swearing here by their king, which for some probably included Molech or Milcom. But it may have also included other instruments. So, um, I would fully agree with you, but in the sense that it's that it would include that nationalism. But I don't think in this te- text it's explicitly restricted to that. Look at the last unit. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. If you've turned your back from him, what does that imply about your direction?
0: Unless you're walking
1: backwards, you're going away from God. Unless you're walking backwards, you're going away from God. Now, it uses two verbs. They're not seeking, and they're not inquiring. They often show up together. What images come to your mind? Seeking and God. Independent from God. Prayerless. Prayerless. Zephaniah is not, he's not going to go to like some super high level religion. He actually goes to the basics. War is coming and he takes him to boot camp. And the most basic level, how are you doing it? When it comes to the will, the future, the will of God, are you seeking Him? Or are you seeking something else? Are you actually prayerful? Are you being motivated by something other than Yahweh when it comes to your worship, your promises? Are you allowing your delight in this world to actually move up to the point of praise? Or are you creature worship? Are you seeing the source of your hope in Yahweh, or are you looking elsewhere? He's just going back to the basics. This isn't rocket science. This is just basic Yahwism 101. Prayerlessness, wordlessness, is a clear sign that judgment is coming. So where's your heart? That that would be the question. Right off the bat, what's amazing is that God actually sends a prophet to warn that all this is coming. Is there a dependence in our souls? Are we prayerful or prayerless? And if we're prayerless, the level to which prayer is important is the level to which God dependence is important. The level to which wordlessness is occurring in our life. Devotions, you know, I'm busy. I just don't have time for that. How much do you need God? Can you afford to not Pause. And get filled up, or are you going to operate on battery power and past grace, relying on past grace and not crying out for for present and future more grace? As I look at this text, here's what I've got. Take seriously the warning of God's judgment. Just write down these texts. They're New Testament texts that allude to Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3. They talk about the great gathering at the end of the age. And somebody read for me Romans 11:32. This was given to Christians. What does it say? Romans 11, 32. For God has consigned to all to disobedience that he may have mercy on them. I obviously wrote down the wrong verse. <laughs> Do not spurn the kindness of God. He'll give mercy. I'm trying to remember how it's worded. But then it warns the church if you spurn his kindness and fail to live in relation to him, you too will be cut off. Maybe. Note then the kindness and the severity of God Severity towards those who have fallen But God's kindness to you Provided you continue to walk In his kindness Otherwise you too will be called There it is No one can serve two masters Jesus says What does it look like to serve money? How do you do that? Practically, what does it look like to serve money? That was that's the contrast. You can't serve God and manna, things of this world. So what does it look like to serve money? Pardon? Sacrifice
0: other things so you
1: do money. Okay. There's a priority. there's a prioritization of serving money means that you're actually there's a, you're prioritizing it above other things. What else? How do you serve money? Okay. How is that somehow a service to money? What does that look like? You show value. You're showing value by how much you want it. It becomes your focus. You expend yourself for it. You're a slave to it. In all these ways, you're serving money, and, and the call is. Don't be enslaved to anything else other than him. Let your control, your passion, your motivation be God. And if it's not, you're a servant of something else. This is a text that's battling, we could say, uh, secularization, syncretism, pluralism. And the call is there's only one path that leads to life. And it isn't being experienced when your back is to the Lord. So right off the bat, just get to the basics. Be prayerful. Be dependent. Be wordful. Be mindful that everything you have in this world and the created sphere is from him. Guard your lips. And guard your heart as you assess whether I will do something or whether I won't do something. Assess motivation. He's just taking everybody right off the bat in the beginning of this book, right back to the very basics of War. War time. Judgment day is coming. How now shall I live? So it's just a personal assessment time. And Babylon was just step one. The rest of the world was not overcome when Babylon destroyed in this way. That day is still to come. Let's pray. Father, Continue to meet us. Thank you for discovery. Even more, thank you that you can awaken our hearts to feel guilty and to repent. And I praise you for mercy. Blood, blood, fresh mercy. Thank you that you're already 100% for us for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. And with that, nothing that can separate us from your love. We hear these words with that kind of hope. And we pray that you would help us take sin more seriously.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.